You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. And this week's topic is the state of Canadian energy policy, new federal electricity regulations, Alberta's decision to pause new renewables, BC's call for power, and a First Nations-led proposal for a hydrogen corridor. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be here. Good morning, Karen. Now let's dive right into it. Ottawa has published draft regulations to support deployment of a net zero national electricity grid by 2035. How are they being received? Like most things in this geographically, culturally, and economically diverse country, particularly in a space energy where the rights of provincial and federal governments somewhat overlap. This isn't uh, a matter entirely without controversy. And uh, after a long process working things out with provinces beforehand, the federal government uh, just this morning put out its draft of the regulations. Uh, they're going to be up uh, for review for a couple of months. Um, and the idea is they would fully kick in in their final form by 2035. Um, one of the pieces that uh, I've really paid attention to is that it's being described as a technology-neutral approach, which I generally agree is best. You pick the objective that you want, which in this case is a net zero emissions grid uh, that is environmentally sustainable, uh, acknowledges the reality of climate change, uh, and also allows for uh, the markets, whether it's uh, publicly funded or privately funded projects, to decide what kind of technologies uh, are used to get to net zero. I think that's generally a, a good approach. Technology changes very quickly. There's a lot of innovation that needs to take place to get to the most uh, economical solutions, whatever they may look like. Um, and there's a good easing in period where in 2023, uh, you know, it's going to be 12 years before these regula- regulations really kick in. Um, and there's been some substantial debate already by commentators. Um, some of them are noting that it's going to require a lot more interprovincial coordination and the building of interties. Uh, which is to say uh, projects that can transfer power province to province, which we don't do a phenomenal job of at this point. A lot of the very, very renewable uh, and clean electricity that British Columbia generates, for example, actually tends to go more to the United States. Uh, We don't actually sell it to Alberta, which uh, is a real missed opportunity. Uh, And the same is true for electricity uh, often produced in the province of Ontario, which does get sold to the U.S. as well. Um, So there's some more coordination required, some more work. Um, And, of course, the outcome that is being formulated here to get to net zero is an important one. Uh, The climate is changing quite literally before our eyes. I just uh, heard this morning about wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui, uh, which have cost uh, several dozen people their lives. Uh, which is really unexpected for anyone who's been to that part of the world, uh, not a place that you would expect to see wildfires in. Greece recently experienced a wave. Uh, there continues to be flooding unexpectedly in many parts of Asia. Uh, it's been a very, very difficult summer, and the world is getting hotter as a result of climate change, so the imperative to act is clear. Uh, but what is also clear is that it comes with some serious costs. Uh, either scenario, you know, if you decarbonize quickly, uh, consumers end up having to pay and that's everyone who uses energy, which is all of us, for everything in our lives uh, in modernity. Uh, so that's going to cost us a lot of money, but failing to act also costs a lot. Um, so the reality is things are just going to get more expensive. Uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada, uh, which put out the regulations on the net zero grid, estimates that the national average household energy bill will increase by $35 to $61 per year if the regulations are adopted, um, which is you know, not a huge 
total amount um, in theory, uh, but uh, they, they do say only 2% of that increase will come as a result of the regulations. Uh, some more work uh, still outstanding to fully understand the impacts of this, but it's clear that the status quo solution, at least the country as a whole, has not been working at meeting those objectives. So a lot more work on that one. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Daniel Smith's government in Alberta has come under some fire for instituting what is being called a moratorium on the approval of new wind and solar projects. What gives? That's right. They have actually paused approval for wind and solar projects in Alberta, which is interesting. Alberta is one of the lead uh, wind and solar um, builders in the country huge, huge industry uh, that's uh, based there in Alberta. And uh, this decision on the moratorium is being sold as a temporary six-month measure aimed at ensuring that factors like land use, particularly impacts on agricultural development and scenery, and grid reliability are properly considered. Uh, And, of course, the ability to get consistent, reliable, affordable supply is a very important factor. Everyone knows that the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, and in- intermittency, which is what energy experts uh, call this characteristic of renewables, uh, is it's just baked into renewables. Um, and there's a little bit more reliability with a grid that's powered by hydro, like we have here in B.C., or nuclear, which we don't have any of here in B.C. Uh, but you do get into some serious problems when your electricity system both doesn't have enough of these reliable backstops uh, and doesn't allow for fossil fuels to be deployed as needed to bridge unmet electricity demand uh, if you have unexpected spikes or, you know, one of your renewable projects isn't able to operate, say the wind is at a standstill and you're really reliant on wind. Um, That's essentially one of the challenges, not the only one, that Europe ran into over the last couple of years with the energy disruption that emerged from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, personally, if the economics makes sense, I'm a really big fan of wind. I was recently on a road trip through Oregon, uh, a conference that I attended, uh, Pacific Northwest Economic Region on Canada-U.S. cooperation. Um, I mentioned that a couple of episodes back. And one of the most stunning vistas I've ever seen in my life was at this beautiful little farmhouse set in the rolling arid hills of eastern Oregon, surrounded by wind turbines as far as the eye could see. It was a delightful spot to watch the sunrise. You know, you see the blades of these massive turbines spinning, 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 little blinking red lights on the horizon. Uh, And it's clear that we were in the middle of farm country. Um, So that, at least in the U.S., that's one renewable solution that is compatible with ongoing agricultural activity. And I wouldn't say much of a disturbance to the natural scenery of the space. Um, But what we're seeing from the Alberta government right now I think could reasonably be described as a negotiating tactic in light of the clean energy debate uh, that is taking place right now federally. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all energy users, and uh, you know, to the extent that the response to this moratorium has been critical, I think it's been rightfully critical. Uh, we can't afford to have our action on climate change uh, willfully delayed. Uh, we can't afford to be behind the times. We require massive amounts of investment very quickly in order to act decisively and quickly on climate change and to ensure that our economic foundations continue to be robust into the long term. Mm. And how does this compare to the approach being taken in British Columbia today? Well, overall, I would characterize BC's uh, approach to one under Premier Eby as a reasonably balanced one. Uh, it advances two key goals environmental sustainability, uh, net zero is a really big part of the plan here in B.C., and economic prosperity, which we all need in order to have healthy, 
uh, well-funded lives, whether that's, uh, you know, jobs for people in all kinds of sectors, uh, including those that use lots of energy, uh, or opportunities uh, for government to invest in the kinds of things that we need, like healthcare and skills development in schools. Um, BC, of course, already has one of the cleanest electricity systems in the world. It's backed up by our abundant hydroelectric energy. Uh, it's also one of the cheapest in the world. Uh, so from that perspective, life is a peach for power users in British Columbia, at least for the time being, provided that our energy needs can be met into the long term. Uh, but also on the energy file, we're also developing a nationally and globally leading liquefied natural gas, LNG, export industry. That's creating jobs in many regions, uh, both BC and into Alberta, and also in the process Advancing economic reconciliation, there are a number of LNG export projects that are Indigenous-led, Indigenous-owned. Uh, that's a very, very exciting narrative that has emerged in these last couple of years. And the BC government has actually mandated that these LNG export projects, in order to get built, attain net zero emissions in their production of the product. That's no, that's no small feat, uh, especially if electricity isn't available, uh, because one of the May not only pathways you would use to get to net zero production is through electrification. Uh, and of course, there's also electrification of uh, passenger vehicle transport, uh, shift to electric vehicles taking place. Um, so there's a bit of an issue that has emerged as a result of all of this change. Uh, these trends are bringing online sizable demand that didn't previously exist. And we're already seeing record province-wide electricity utilization uh, on cold winter mornings over the last couple of years. And that trend's only going to continue. Uh, more and more people are buying electric vehicles. Industry is electrifying at a rapid pace. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of new industries emerge, including uh, electricity-based uh, hydrogen generation, hydrogen production, rather. Um, so that's forced quite a shift. And for the first time in 15 years, uh, just last month, BC Hydro put out a call for power. Um, they put out the ask to potential partners to line up uh, so we can uh, actually meet that demand. And that's going to present a tremendous opportunity for reconciliation. There's a strong focus there on Indigenous-led and Indigenous-partnered projects. Um, and hopefully that helps us get to a point where we're actually producing into the long term the clean, often renewable electricity that we need to keep up with uh, growing population, growing economy, and growing ambition on climate action. Now, in another interesting story, Margaret, on Canadian energy, a First Nations group is championing the idea of a hydrogen energy corridor. What do you think? Well, more energy alternatives, whatever form they come in, both for domestic use and export, are just great. And, of course, the idea of a pipeline carrying energy products from Alberta to Churchill, Manitoba, uh, which is the proposal in question, um, Manitoba, uh, Churchill has a deep sea port at Hudson Bay. That's an idea that's basically as old as time itself, <laughs> or at least for me as a commentator, it appears to be. I've been hearing it pitched in some form for well over a decade, but this is actually the first time I've heard it suggested that it'd be hydrogen, not oil and gas products, uh, being carried to Tidewater. Um, part of the proposal that uh, this First Nations-led group has put forward um, is a number of, of different components, including power lines to enable the production of hydrogen uh, through electrolysis um, or assisted by it. Um, and uh, if there is an industrial application that can fund the development of new infrastructure um, of any kind, uh, this is a good example, of course, that can really benefit rural communities, uh, particularly rural communities 
that suffer from economic deprivation. You know, same principle uh, applies for roads and ports. If you're building a large mine somewhere where there aren't a lot of jobs because there isn't a lot of economic activity, um, the project proponent going out there and making the investment um, so that they can, you know, do the things they need to do in operating their company uh, can really benefit uh, local communities. Um, so there's a, a strong case here, I think, for that public benefit coming out of this private investment proposal. And in this case, Treaty 5 nations are taking the lead on this project, uh, but they're also inviting other nations from other territories uh, to join them in investing. So I'm excited to see how it rolls out. Um, still a lot of uncertainty overall about the future of hydrogen as an export industry. Uh, a lot of talk about it, a lot of debate, the amount of money that's starting to flow in this direction, uh, but we still don't see that you know, commercial-scale deployment of uh, this is uh, an export technology uh, in terms of production just yet. Um, so still lots of time. Uh, before we really know for sure what this is going to look like. But I'm excited to see this uh, energy corridor prospect uh, be given a new exciting spin in the context of hydrogen. So we'll be watching that one pretty closely. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too, and Karen. All the best.